I read recently that the number of people going to university to study the arts and literature in particular is dropping. It's just not, you know, practical. Look, I know literature is not science and textile practical, but I did an undergraduate and a master's degree in literature, and I know that that study influences who I am and how I see the world every day. As part of that, in my undergraduate years, I studied a course on autobiography, people writing the stories of their own life. And there's a few things that I learned from that. First, that there is not a static sense of who you are. I mean, even physically, most of the body completely regenerates itself over seven years or so. I mean, so if every cell of you is different than it was from seven years ago, are you still you? But perhaps even more so than the physical regeneration, we become who we are through the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. Our relationship to the world puts us at its center, the main actor and scriptwriter and director and editor. The Oscars have just happened and everything, everywhere, all at once, totally cleaned up. And on the surface, it's another multiverse movie, kind of a quirkier version of the Marvel worlds. But I think the movie is most interesting as a peon to the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And what's intriguing to me as I figure out those stories for myself is trying to figure out what aspects of who I am it's helpful to be certain about, to commit to, commit to it hard, and where and when the adventure is actually in letting in ambiguity and variation and uncertainties and really different adventures, different elements of who I might be. Sometimes it turns out wisdom is not increased certainty, but actually a willingness to recognize all that is uncertain. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Anil Seth is Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Essex. He's the author of a wonderful book called Being You, and he's also the creator of the Perception Census, which is a new study to help understand how we actually experience the world. And in the interview, and actually at the end of the interview as well, I'm going to give you a link to that so you can be part of that if you'd like to be. To put it simply, Anil studies our consciousness, which is truly one of the great frontiers of the unknown. How do we perceive who we are? How do we perceive the world? And how do those two things play together? I have to start a conversation about consciousness by just asking, what is it? One way to think about consciousness is a kind of a story that the brain tells itself. So at least for certain aspects of consciousness, the, the sense of personal identity can, can be thought of that way. So my, my own story is as just someone who's been always curious about this thing that we call the self and this thing that we call this phenomenon that we call consciousness. We rely on our memories to guide us every single day. And our early lives, of course, are just this deep, deep immersion in learning, learning, and learning. But those memories from our past, I mean, how reliable are they for better or for worse? Like all early memories, the more often I try and recollect it, the more unreliable it no doubt becomes. I mean, that's a funny fact about human memory. It 
does have this malleable characteristic that we remember every act of memory is a, an act of recreation and, and rewriting and reshaping. So all memories are malleable, but that doesn't mean a memory can't have great weight and gravitas. And for Anil, one of those happened when he was just seven years old. I do have this vivid memory of looking in the mirror and seeing myself and realizing that at some point I would die. It's kind of a, maybe a bit of a morbid thought to be having, but I think this recognition of mortality, I mean, there must be a point for each of us where we have that thought for the first time. I'm not sure I remember the moment for me where I realized I would die, but I do remember the moment where I finally understood or began to grasp how big time and space were and how my life is just the smallest of small flashes of light in all that darkness. And that leads to the same questions. Why am I here? What's the point? What's a life well lived? Most of the time we get educated out of asking questions like this and into more sensible things that we can get a job with and so on. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, it's not that I would, was fixated on these questions for the whole of my childhood and life. No, I kind of meandered around a bit too, but they never went away. And while I was studying, I studied to start with physics and then psychology and then computer science and AI at graduate school. I never kind of gave up on this curiosity. And I was really lucky because at the time, like the early 2000s, uh, when I finished my, was finishing my PhD, consciousness science, that this challenge of understanding how this electrified pate inside our skulls <laughs> can be the basis of everything yeah. that there is for us. You know, it's, 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 it's where we ha it's where the sense of self comes from. It's where our experience of the world comes from. All our joys and sorrows, all our thoughts and feelings and beliefs are all dependent on this wetware in some unknown way. And for a long time, this question had been treated as a primarily philosophical or even a spiritual or religious question. But it was coming to be recognized again as the central question in the mind and brain sciences. And so I was sort of along for the ride and I've been very lucky to be part of the journey where we can use, deploy all the tools of modern science, neuroscience, psychology and physics, math and computer modeling. Yep. Try and understand this mystery. So that's, I mean, that's part of me. But, um, you know, there are other parts too. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, this is something that I do. But I'm, I feel very fortunate to work yeah. with a, a number of brilliant people pursuing this question. You know, when you, when you hold your story about how you got here, and it was through math and through physics and through AI, how important has it been to have those diverse experiences before centering in on kind of the science of it all? I think very important. And by the way, it wasn't just the, the quantitative, the so-called hard sciences. When I was at yes. school, I was really torn because certainly in, in the UK and at that time in the 80s, we had to choose. Between, we could only do three subjects at, at A-level when, when I was right. 16 or 15. I remember having to choose. And I was equally enamored by the arts and, and by writing and mm. reading. I just couldn't do both. Um, but as time has gone on, I mean, my work is equally now all about writing, all about philosophy as much as yeah. it is about neuroscience. And this interdisciplinarity, also working with artists, working 
with, with all sorts of people has been fundamental. And I think more so than many other questions, consciousness is intrinsically interdisciplinary. I mean, the disciplines right. that we have in academia, they're, they're made up. I mean, nature, <laughs> nature doesn't, exactly. it doesn't carve itself at the joints that we find in our school curricula. I mean, yeah. These disciplines are inventions to make teaching relatively easy and marking easy, well, easy-ish. The world doesn't work like that. So right. the fact that when we confront a deep mystery that we need to bring multiple perspectives to it shouldn't be a surprise. And it's it's also a great reward because as a as a scientist now, it means that, that I keep learning because of course it's impossible to be expert in well, yeah. in any discipline, let alone in multiple ones. And yeah. what I feel my, my job mainly is now is, is trying to connect different people, different insights, different methods together. Uh, and that means continually trying to grapple with whole areas where I yes. feel a great sense of naivety. Feels like there's a, somehow a meta experience of you grappling across different disciplines to kind of find the story in the same way a brain is making a thousand million billion connections to tell its own story as well. It's very funny. There's, there's all these parallels. One of the primary ideas I talk about in, in my book and that I've been working on is the brain is a kind of prediction machine, always testing its predictions right. against reality. And, and the idea is that's yeah. how we perceive things. And of course, that's also an analogy for what scientists do. We test right. our ideas by doing experiments. The brain is doing exactly the same thing or something that's interestingly analogous, even if it's not exactly the same. Knowing that consciousness is both a biological function, but also something that is affected as we tell our own stories about ourselves, what's changed in the way you tell your own story, do you think? This is a very good question. It's it's almost impossible to know because I don't have the alternative version of me that, that right. did something else. Yeah. Well, I can only say that it feels important to me in not just in the historical matter of fact narrative of where I live and what I do during the day, and but in terms of how I experience my life unfolding, it, it adds a different perspective, I think. So to every experience, because we're conscious all the time right. that we're aware of things. I mean, that's that's what the word means. So every moment of lived experience is a moment of consciousness. And yes. it's interesting to go through life with the the first person perspective on it all. It's just like me as being me, looking right. out the window and I'm looking out the window now, I can see it's dusk, but I can see a tree with golden leaves on it outside the window. And then there's this other perspective, which is what's happening in my brain to generate that experience and how does it relate to what's actually there and what's actually in here inside my skull. When I make yes. a voluntary action, pick up this mug of tea, feels like yes. an exercise of free will, but there's this slightly disorienting <laughs> perspective where I think, what does that actually mean? You know, what, what's right. happening? Is my brain just post hoc reinterpreting that actions and labeling them as freely willed? I mean, what? And to try and hold <laughs> both of these things in mind at once, it's almost impossible. It's a bit bistable, but I think yes. it is. I think it's, for me, it's enriching. It's a, maybe a bit like the insights, it's not the same as, but people who've spent thousands of hours meditating often report that they have this detachment from their experiences, which is, which mm -hmm. is productive. And I, I don't claim to have anything like that, 
it takes you out of your yeah the present moment and i think in a useful way i mean it's interesting that connection to to meditation and how you know brain scans of long-time meditators have a different wiring in their brain are there any disciplines like meditation um or journaling or gratitude practices there's a lot of stuff that's out there in the kind of self-development self-help world that you've brought into your own practice with that awareness of what it means to develop a consciousness or or continue to refine a consciousness well i think meditation is a is a very beneficial practice i i have meditated i do meditate but i don't do it as regularly <laughs> as with as much dedication as i know i ought to but so it's just 98.3 percent of all humans on the planet oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. should meditate a little bit more <laughs> yeah yeah but no I'm, I'm definitely way down the scale of, of people who do meditate yeah but i think it, it is very it is very helpful i think it's the kind of practice that can be helpful in in most walks of life apart from when you are already in a lot of distress because if you start meditating at the wrong time then i think it can be yes. quite quite difficult quite quite dangerous even um but besides that i i'm not i'm not really sure there, there are no yeah. other sort of regular practices that i that i do I, I just find walking around the world thinking about these things is a kind of walking meditation if you like yes that's helpful it is um and what's the book you've chosen to read for us so i thought about this for quite a lot and i i settled on the obvious choice in the end for me which is a book <laughs> by a, a philosopher called daniel dennett dan dennett has been an inspiration of mine and more lately a mentor of mine since i was first really reading deeply into consciousness mm. as, as an undergraduate as sort of 18 19 year old he published a book called consciousness explained in i think 1991 so more than 30 years ago and i remember reading it as an undergraduate first year and realizing that hold on this consciousness there's something to be done here there's a there's 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 work to be done there are ideas that make sense it's not all just old philosophy or woo woo right. you know neo spiritual nonsense um there's solid reasoning and and what's more it was counterintuitive it was leading me to think about consciousness in in new ways now a lot of people bristled at the title consciousness explained it's very provocative right yeah and a lot of people call it ha it's consciousness explained away he doesn't really <laughs> explain it right but returning to this book years later I still found it to be incredibly rich, kind of embarrassing that a lot of the things that I later thought that, oh, this this is a new <laughs> idea that either I've had Discovered or I've read it. about. It's like, no, yeah. it was there in, in Dennett's book 30 years ago. Yeah. And he's still a uh, kind of benevolent grandfather to the field, keeping us all in on track. And while I may not agree with him about everything, I've learned so much from him as a person and specifically from this book which has inspired not just me but so many others in this area well you know i was excited to see that you chosen it because i think this is the first book on consciousness that i read probably 30 years ago and barely understood it but just felt that this was pointing at something that was significant and mysterious and important 
Um, it was kind of my first glimmer of interest in this world. Um, how did you end up choosing the two pages? Because the problem with a rich book like this is there's like a lot of two pages. It's so difficult. Well, I was first going to just read the first two pages, and then I read your guidance for the podcast that said, don't read the first two pages. So, that, okay, I can't, <laughs> I can't do that then. I'm going to have to think about this slightly differently. So I settled on a chapter. It's about halfway through, and it's a chapter um, where he's, he's really undermining and, and highlighting one of the common assumptions that was made at the time in people thinking about consciousness and that still is made and that yeah. we still fall into these same traps and he calls it the Cartesian theater and what I've done is I've 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 sort of I hope this is okay I don't know quite what the rules are but I've I've kind of cobbled together two pages worth Perfect. of paragraphs yeah uh, just I think it makes Perfect. sense but but please don't take yeah. this as literal two pages um there are other bits in between well, Anil, I'm excited. Let me introduce you formally. Anil Seth, author of the wonderful book, Being You, reading Dan Dennett's book, Consciousness Explained. Over to you, Anil. The point of view of the observer. There is no cell or group of cells in the brain of such anatomical or functional preeminence as to appear to be the keystone or the center of gravity of the whole system. William James, 1890. Wherever there is a conscious mind, there is a point of view. This is one of the most fundamental ideas we have about minds or about consciousness. A conscious mind is an observer who takes in a limited subset of all the information there is. An observer takes in information that is available at a particular, roughly, continuous sequence of times and places in the universe. For most practical purposes, we can consider the point of view of a particular conscious subject to be just that, a point, moving through space-time. What happens, though, when we close in on the observer and try to locate the observer's point of view more precisely as a point within the individual? The simple assumptions that work so well on larger scales begin to break down. There is no single point in the brain where all information funnels in. And this fact has some far from obvious, indeed quite counterintuitive consequences. Descartes, one of the first to think seriously about what must happen once we look closely inside the body of the observer, elaborated an idea that is so superficially natural and appealing that it's permeated our thinking about consciousness ever since. As we saw in chapter two, Descartes decided that the brain did have a center, the pineal gland, which served as the gateway to the conscious mind. The pineal gland is the only organ in the brain that is in the midline, rather than paired with left and right versions. Smaller than a pea, it sits in splendid isolation on its stalk, attached to the rest of the nervous system just about in the middle of the back of the brain. Since its function was quite inscrutable, it is still unclear what the pineal gland actually does. Descartes proposed a role for it. In order for a person to be conscious of something, traffic from the census had to arrive at this station where it thereupon caused a special, indeed magical, transaction to occur between the person's material brain and their immaterial mind. That idea, Cartesian dualism, is hopelessly wrong, as we saw in chapter two. 
But while materialism of one sort or another is now a received opinion approaching unanimity, even the most sophisticated materialists today often forget that once Descartes' ghostly res cogitans is discarded, there is no longer a role for a centralized gateway, or indeed for any functional center to the brain. The pineal gland is not only not the fax machine to the soul, it is also not the oval office of the brain, and neither are any of the other portions of the brain. The brain is headquarters, the place where the ultimate observer is, but there is no reason to believe that the brain itself has any deeper headquarters, any inner sanctum, arrival at which is the necessary or sufficient condition for conscious experience. In short, there is no observer in the brain. That's great. Yes, that's a lovely turn of phrase. The fact machine to the soul and the oval office to the brain. That's that's wonderful. It's great. Kind of dates it, doesn't it, as well? <laughs> What's a fact machine again? Um, what is it about that that struck such a deep chord with you? It's this idea of of undermining assumptions that we still have, even when we <laughs> think we've got rid of the really problematic assumptions. So a lot of conversations about consciousness often start off with, with Descartes and this enlightenment philosopher who divided the universe into matter stuff, res extensa, the stuff that tables and chairs and brains and bodies are made of, and res cogitans, the phrase right. that crops up in that excerpt, which is the stuff of thoughts, of feelings, yeah. the stuff of consciousness. And once you split the universe into two like this, it becomes very hard to figure out how they go together again. Right. And that was Descartes' perspective of dualism, that you have these two separate realms, the mental and the physical, and the problem is explaining how they interact. Now that's a view that most, but not all people working today find you know, challenging. It, it doesn't yeah. really, it's, far, it's hard to see how that would work. And so it's very easy to say that, no, no, we reject dualism. Right. We are good materialists. We think consciousness is a, is a property of physical stuff organized somehow, and we'll figure out how that is. But there's another aspect, and this is what Dennett is getting at in this passage, which is that there's still this latent idea of a place where it all comes together. Right. A little, a mini-me inside my skull. Right. A little, little self pictures of a little perceiving. person in the brain kind of Absolutely. operating the machine. Yeah. And this is a much more pernicious idea to get rid of. You know, yes. Dake, uh, Dennett, he spends a lot of time in the book pointing at exactly why that idea can't work and you know, why there can't be a, a boundary or a, a single finish line where things magically become conscious. You know, right. get presented. There's another beautiful quote where he says, you know, the idea that things are presented to consciousness, like what does that mean? Presented to what? Presented to the <laughs> queen? Like what, what does it mean? Um, right. So he deconstructs a lot of this stuff. And I remember about five years ago, I was giving a TED talk and it was a terrifying experience because these things are, but it was particularly terrifying because Dan Dennett was in the audience and of all the <laughs> 3000 people there, and he was the one I was worried about. <laughs> right. And he came up to me afterwards and, and was very, very kind about it. But he, yeah. he pointed out, of course, he pointed out the one line <laughs> with total perspicuity where well, I fall into exactly this trap because right. in the TED talk and, and you can still I mean you can still watch it and, and discover mm -hmm. this error for yourself <laughs> I talk about an inner movie screen I talk about right. this kind of multimodal multi-sensory inner movie um, of 
conscious experience. But of course, that is precisely how so this seductive. metaphor gets back in. You start thinking yeah. that way, and okay, it's a screen. Who's watching the screen? Right. It. 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 And and the fact that you know, I thought I wasn't susceptible to this. It, it's Cartesian thinking anymore, but there, there, yeah. it ha- there it was. You know, it still, it still slipped in there. So that's what appeals yeah. to me about about Dennett's book. He he also talks about many other things. He tries to make the case that we think about the whole problem of consciousness in a, in a in the wrong way, which is also very challenging. But his ability to gently persuade us yeah. that the the kind of unseen edifices on which we erect our theories are just crumbling away or insubstantial or, or just not even them. He does that so beautifully. There's so much I want to ask you around this, but perhaps it's this. Is there a, is there a language or metaphor that you use today? Because as you say, your TED Talk's three or four years old now, maybe five years old, yeah. um, that is most helpful in part to move away from that default we go to, which is it's all showing up somewhere, somehow, and something's being observed and processed about it. It's very hard. Uh, we we rely on metaphors in science, but we we inevitably get misled by them. Yes. I mean, that's just before I, I give you my preferred one, another metaphor that's so easy to slip into is, is the brain as a computer. Yes. And you know, the history of biology has always been a history of thinking about the brain in terms of the dominant technology of the day, whether it's a, you know, yeah. um, a system of plumbing or a telephone network or now a computer or possibly now the internet, who knows? Um, and you'll find a lot of people who now reject that and say, oh, no, no, I don't believe, of course I don't believe the brain is literally a computer. Yeah. And then they'll still happily talk about information processing in the brain, and which is, I think, a very parallel thing. It's like yeah. you, you think you've got ridden got rid of something but it's still the ghost of it is still there now the metaphor that i prefer to use and it's really a description rather than a metaphor is that the brain is a prediction machine right and it that i i use that because i think it's well i I use it because i think it's in some important sense on the right track yeah and it's non-committal about what kind of you know in what other kind of machine it is. It's not saying the brain is a computer. It's not saying that yeah. you could build a robot that is conscious or anything like that. Um, it's looking at the problems that brains need to solve, which is which are problems about interpreting the sensory information that comes in and controlling and regulating the body. And the yes. brain is primarily for keeping the body and therefore itself alive. Right. And thinking of the brain is constantly sending out predictions either to figure out what's there or to control something because when you can predict something you can control it is for me a very helpful way of understanding under a common framework all the different aspects of our conscious experience everything we experience whether it's a visual scene out there in the world or an emotion in the body or an experience of free will all for me are different kinds of perceptual prediction that the brain is is making and updating and you know to what extent i mean if we are if our brain is helping to predict our future because that keeps us alive because if we can predict it we can probably manage around it and control it to what extent do i have a shared reality or shared perceptions with other people oh this is this is a terrific question i think we radically or at least some 
non-trivial degree overestimate that. Now, there is a real world out there. It's not that all our perceptual experiences are completely different from each other and, and arbitrary. Yeah. You know, if we're both trying to cross the roads and you see a car coming, then I'll probably see a car <laughs> coming too. And, and right. neither of us should walk in front of the car because it's really there and yeah. we're going to get hurt. But if we ask ourselves what color the car is right, uh, or what it sounds like, we might still use the same words, like maybe it's a red car. Yep. But perhaps your experience of red is different from my experience of red, or your experience mm -hmm. of the sound it makes or the time it seems to take might be different for, from mine. Right. And I think we do underestimate this diversity in our perceptual worlds. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that unlike differences on the outside, I mean, we all differ in skin color and height and body shape and so on, where even small differences are at least visible, even if we ignore them. Right. Um, differences on the inside in our subjective experience are by their nature private and hidden. Yeah. And it's only when they become sufficiently large that people start behaving differently and speaking differently and we give them names like oh, this person has maybe autism or, or ADHD or synesthesia. But if it's a smaller difference, we just don't see it. And the other yeah. reason is that it seems to us, and this is the key reason, it seems to us that we experience the world as it really is. Right. It doesn't seem like it's dependent on our brains. It seems like, no, sure, that, that red car is really there in a mind-independent way. But mm -hmm. it isn't. The way we experience it is dependent on our brains. So yes. these two observations conspire to make us underestimate the differences in our inner worlds. And one of our projects, actually, the project we're, we're doing right now is called the Perception Census. And it's a first large-scale attempt to try and map out this hidden landscape of perceptual differences. Um, so yes, a little plug, if, if, I, if I might, for it. Please, it's, a, no. it's, it's a big citizen science project, so we're trying to get as many people to take part as possible. All you need is your own computer, laptop, desktop, and there's a series of fun, engaging, we hope, little illusions, interactive illusions, and brain teasers, and simple experiments yes. that probe different aspects of how you perceive the world. And if enough people take part, I think we can really rewrite our understanding of this right. important aspect of, of human nature. And if you do take part, apart from the warm glow of having helped <laughs> advance research, you'll learn about perception too. You'll learn about how it works yes. in general, and you also learn about how it works for you in particular. So we've already had about 16,000 people take part, Brilliant. but we're hoping for, for many more. Uh, and it's where can, where can people find that? Share the URL if you wouldn't mind. I'll uh, the the URL is is perception census mm -hmm. dot dream machine dot world. Perfect. There's a dream machine in there, or you can easily find it just by looking at my webpage, which is anilseth dot com, and there's a link straight to the perception census there. That's right, and we'll put both of those links in the show notes so people can access that there. Um. Yeah, I, I, I had been thinking about that, not through the rigor of the test that you're providing uh, through your uh, perception census, but through a sense of humor and how people's sense of humor differ. Some, a very, very small number of people find me funny. <laughs> Vast numbers <laughs> of people don't find me funny, and I can only put it down to uh, a different sense of perception in the world as to what humor is and, and how they see the world. I think that's right. There are the domains like that it's very natural to think that we have different experiences. You, know, you go to right. a comedy show, you don't expect everybody to find the same things funny. You go to right. a, a, a Shakespeare play, 
Yeah. You don't expect everyone to have the same reaction at a play or, or looking at a work of art. Yeah. But somehow in our everyday lived experience, we do sort of assume that. Mm. And I think this has important social ramifications as well, because if we can cultivate a bit more humility about our own way of seeing, recognizing that the way we see things is not necessarily the way they are or the way somebody right. else sees things. I think that's really helpful to build a sort of a platform for, for empathy and communication with other people. Because these, you know, these perceptual echo chambers we live in, you know, they, yeah. they kind of ramify all the way up to the belief echo chambers, the social media echo chambers that we're all yeah. too familiar with now. And you know, it, it can be very hard to understand why somebody believes something so contrary to our own politics sometimes. And it's a very useful exercise to recognize, well, the same exact dynamic can play yeah. out in perception too. Remember that photo of the dress that half the world saw yeah. as blue and gold, blue and, yeah. blue and black or white and gold. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was, that was so fascinating because you had yeah. a situation here where it was suddenly very apparent to people that, oh my God, for the exact same mm. situation, we can have radically different experiences. And that recognition is something that if we can really build in to society in general, I think it will, this is me being hopelessly idealistic, um, yes. I think it can diffuse at least some of the dynamics of polarization that we, we are con we're struggling yeah. with. I mean, it's, you know, uh, Daniel Kahneman has done something with that around our thinking through the, you know, cognitive biases and understanding how, how, how irrational we are most of the time in thinking. This feels like a, a similar project, but at a deeper ongoing kind of input level around what we perceive. Now, that's absolutely right. A, a lot of these concepts about bias, you know, the, the really devious thing about biases is usually we don't know we have them. Right. Um, and when it comes to perception, we, it's, not, it's not only that we're biased and that there would be some absolutely accurate way of experiencing the world if only we could get rid of bias. It's, it's even more problematic than that. There is no absolutely accurate way of perceiving right. the world. Bias you know, is it's, all it's the way all, down. Bias is all the <laughs> way down. Exactly. Yeah. And now, what does it mean to grow wise? <laughs> I'm so sure you're asking the right person this, this, this question. In theory, obviously not in practice, but in theory. <laughs> oh, goodness, goodness me. Um, what does it mean to, to grow wise? I mean, maybe it is partly this cultivation of a bit of, of humility mm. uh, and being able to assess the validity of our own beliefs in better ways. To yeah. know, not, not merely to know things, but to know things about the things that we know yes. and to know what's reliable, what's unreliable and who else we can, we can learn from. I think, and there's probably some, there's probably a ton of articulate quotes about this, but there, there seems to be something about wisdom that it, it correlates with amount of recognized ignorance. You know, a wise person... Good is yeah. much more aware of all the things they don't know. Yeah. I love that. You know, you, you've brought together all sorts of people um, in your institute, you know, mathematicians, psychologists, a psychiatrist, um, neuroscientist, brain images. Um, and I know in your book, you, you know, you're talking about, you know, we're still really early on in consciousness. Glimmerings are beginning to appear around that. I'm wondering, 
What, if anything, has been most confronting about what you're discovering about consciousness? Damn. I think how fragile it is. Mm. And it, maybe this is just getting older and there's a recognition of the precarity of our, our physical bodies. Right. There's a precarity of our, our psychological lives as well. Um, and you, when we open our eyes and look around, it seems incredibly robust. Like I just yeah. see the world, it's there, it's always going to be there, my ability to experience it, to feel emotions, to... It seems we take it for granted yes. until we get ill or something else happens. So there, this, this loss of, of faith in the robustness of our bodies, but also of our minds is something each of us encounters throughout life. But studying the mechanisms involved in consciousness, I think, just really highlight that, highlights just what an everyday miracle it is that right. we have these conscious experiences of the world and the self and how little it takes for those to change in, yeah. in fundamentally life-altering ways. And this has been such a lovely conversation. I've got a final question for you. Um, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Oh, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said? Hmm. That's... This is really putting me on the spot here. <laughs> you, I should. This is where I should have listened to some of your previous interviews. Ah, and you're you're welcome to say nothing at all. My work here is done. You can well, drop a well, mic and walk. I mean, there's, there's there's absolutely so much more uh, that we could cover. Yeah. I guess the the um, the one of the other central messages that I talk about in in my own book um, is the nature of the self. So yeah. not in addition to how we experience the world around us. This idea of what is the self, yeah. and here we can circle back to, to Daniel Dennett. He undercuts nicely this idea of this little homuncular mini me that's watching the movie projected on the inner screen <laughs> somewhere, you know, behind my yeah. forehead. Now that that's gone. But what do we replace it with? Right. And Dennett has his own theory of this multiple drafts model. Um, but I have another idea, and and this is the idea that what the self is, you know, what the experience of self is, is just a set of perceptual predictions. Yeah. Same principles underlie our experience of self that also underpin our experience of the world. So the self yeah. is not the thing that does the perceiving. The self is a perception too in all its aspects, right. whether it's the body, the experience of free will, yeah. or the narrative of memories and plans give us our ever-evolving sense of identity. Well, if I may ask a question that follows on from that, if that's my sense of self, what is my sense of us? The self, I think, has many different levels. Right. Some of them are very basic physiological. I think the most fundamental level of self is this primary primordial feeling of being alive yeah. i think this is absolutely critical we experience the world with through and because of our living bodies of a deep continuity between a nature as living organisms and our conscious minds yeah but at a higher so the different level of self moving through the body out into the world 
part of our sense of self is co-constructed through the minds of others. Right. And part of what it feels like to be me is how my brain makes predictions about what others <laughs> perceive me mm. to be. And I mean, that sounds a bit recursive and, and abstract, but you know, there are yeah. very simple examples. You know, I have a pretty terrible memory and you know, I rely on my friends to remember things about my own life, which constitute part of my sense of self. So when I'm with them and they're, you know, we're sort of recounting anecdotes from some years ago, I feel that myself is, is larger, is, is more yeah, whole. Yeah. I feel more of me bits get filled in. And so part of my experience of selfhood really is in this dynamic between me and, and other minds. And you know, I, I talk about that level as the, the level of the social self, where our sense yeah. of self is refracted through the minds of those around us. And you take that away and you don't abolish the self entirely. Yeah. But I think we lose something that is very precious to each of us. I was pretty delighted when I came up with the question for Neil, what does it mean to grow wise? I love how he kind of wrestled with it. I mean, I love a good question, as you know, and this one felt like it landed right in the middle of science and philosophy and self-development, self-growth, consciousness and, and everything. And Neil said it was being able to assess the validity of our beliefs in better ways. And I've actually used something like that when trying to define emotional intelligence. I think AI is being able to watch yourself in the moment, have some sense of what's pushing and pulling you to behave as you are, and then being able to tweak that behavior. If you can think of a different way of interacting that might serve you better. So I'd be curious to ask you, dear listener, how you'd answer the question of what does it mean to grow wise for you? But actually, I think I'm more interested in the answers to a different question, which is what wisdom have you gathered? What's now in your bones? I mean, people like you who listen to this podcast are often curious. You're often seekers of knowledge. But sometimes it's good to stop and celebrate what it is you know, what lessons you finally learned, and what are the most important stories you tell yourself about who you are. If you enjoyed my conversation with Anil, I'm sure you did because he's a very smart man. I've got two related interviews that you might like to go back and check out. One is Will Storr, um, a writer and a philosopher. Um, he wrote about status. He wrote a book called Selfie, which is like how we perceive ourselves. So that interview is called Your Hero Making Brain. And then again, another writer, philosopher, um, somebody deep in technology as well, Brian Christian, What's at the Heart of Being Human? You know, those two great titles, the hero making brain and what's at the heart of being human. If you want more information about Anil, his uh, website is anilseth.com, A-N-I-L-S-E-T-H.com. And there you'll actually find a link to the perception census, which we've talked about a few times. Um, I'd encourage you to participate in that. I know uh, Anil would, would be grateful for your participation as well. Um, here's the link for that, perception census dot dream machine dot world and dream machine is spelt with just one m um, that's why i'm suggesting anil seth as a an easier place to access that um, thank you for listening thank you for being part of this community thanks for all the support you give the podcast whether that's through um, a review or through stars or through passing a favorite interview along to somebody else who might become one of our listeners you're awesome you're doing great <laughs>